All right, Ezekiel 8 is where we're going to begin this morning. You know, I've noticed, um, and this is not a negative thing, but I've, I've just noticed how obsessed our society seems to be with protecting themselves and protecting the stuff that they have. Um, people have, uh, have homeowner's insurance. They have car insurance. They have life insurance. They have health insurance. They have identity protection. They make sure that their bank accounts have FDIC protection. They have antivirus software on their computer. And on and on the list goes. And, and all of that stuff is fine. And, and you know, we sh- probably shouldn't go through life without some of those things in place. Uh, especially if we have a family. But, you know, there's this, um, there's this strange obsession that people have with, with wanting to make sure that the, the stuff they've accumulated in this life stays safe for them, you know? They keep an eye on that 401k. Um, all these things I, I notice about ourselves, we spend so much time and effort and energy and money protecting ourselves and protecting the stuff that we've accumulated. And I have to wonder, do we spend anywhere near the amount of thought and time and energy protecting our heart, protecting our heart from those things in life that continually and very subtly creep towards us all the time? doesn't matter how strong a Christian you are. doesn't matter how close to God you are. There is, there is a continual war on for the allegiance of your heart. And I wonder how much time, how much thought, how much intentionality we put into ensuring the safety of our heart and making sure that our heart remains true to God alone that we do not allow any of these subtle idols to find their way into our heart and take up residence there and begin to erode our love and loyalty to God. Today we pick back up in Ezekiel chapter 8. and We've seen how God has called this young prophet to a very bizarre ministry. I don't know how else to say it. It's just weird, man. It's a strange ministry. Last week we saw the beginning of some of these odd things that God called Ezekiel to, to act out in front of the people. Now remember, I'll remind you quickly, Ezekiel is one of the exiles who had been captured in the second attack down in Jerusalem and carried off into captivity in Babylon. He's now in Babylon, and God is using him to minister to the exiles there. These people who have rebelled against God, they're in Babylon because of their sin. And yet God is still caring for them. He's still ministering to them in exile through Ezekiel. And as we pick up here in chapter 8, what we find in the opening part of the chapter is that the elders there who were also carried away in the exile from Jerusalem. So the elders now, many of them, not all of them, were carried away into exile. Now they are sitting with Ezekiel And it appears, I don't know this, but just from the way that the early verses are written here in chapter 8, it appears that perhaps they've come to Ezekiel to seek his wisdom, to ask if God has shown him anything, you know, maybe about how things are going to play out. Because the elders are sitting in front of Ezekiel. And as they're sitting there, 
God gives Ezekiel another vision. And um, this, this vision begins here in chapter 8 and goes through chapter 11. I'm going to try to just touch on the highlights of this today. And then next Sunday, God willing, we'll pick up in 12. And I want to do just a summary of 12 through 17, but then focus on chapter 18 next week. If you have time to read that this week and think about it, I would encourage you to do so. It is a topic that, um, boy, it hits home with maybe all of us uh, struggling with wondering, um, do I have to pay for the sins of my father or my mother? Are my children going to have to pay for my sins? Um, is God judging me because of the sins of the people who came before me and so on? It's, it's going to be a, a very, very important word next week. So uh, let's pick up in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 3. Let's read a few verses here and see what's going on. It says, And he, that's God, stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair. I'm telling you, this is a strange book, y'all, okay? <laughs> and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions. Now, this is the key. In visions of God, not physically, brought me to Jerusalem. So about an 800-mile trip, uh, he gets a first-class ticket, immediate delivery to Jerusalem, and he brings him to the door of the north gate of the inner court, or the holy place of the temple, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. Verse 4, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. He's referring to what we looked at in chapter 1. <clears throat> then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. So God has transported Ezekiel in the spirit, in a vision, from Babylon all the way back to the temple in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is seeing these things played out. And he's brought to the gate of the inner court. I don't have time to recap all this, but you remember when we studied the building of um, the tabernacle and then later now the temple, there was the, the sort of the curtain and then later the wall around the outer court. You walk in, there's the brazen altar and the laver and so on, and then you come to another enclosure, which was the inner court or the holy place, and inside there was the curtain, behind that was the innermost place or the holy of holies. So now Ezekiel is standing at the gate, the door of the holy place, the inner court, and there he sees that God's people, keep this in mind, God's people have put in place some kind of idol. We're not told what. No reason really to speculate. Some kind of idol they've put in place, which God calls the image of jealousy. And what this is saying is if you tie this with other scriptures where God talks about his jealousy for his people, God is saying they have brought this false idol into my temple. And they've placed it right at the door of the holy place, and they're worshiping this thing. And God says, rather openly, making himself quite vulnerable to critics and skeptics, God says, this provokes jealousy in me. Now, again, I showed you that clip one time of Oprah, 
talking about, well, I was sitting in church and I believed in God until I heard the pastor say that I am a jealous God. And I thought, well, what kind of God would be jealous? He's got everything. And I thought, oi, honey, you missed it by a thousand miles. Okay. You know, um, the, the idea of a jealous God or the jealousy of God is, is very hard for our modern minds to understand. We live in a world where tolerance and inclusivity are the theology of the day. Churches preach, some churches preach that God's okay with anything and everything you do because we're all his children. That is not biblical. We are not all his children. We are God's enemies until we are born again through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and we are made his children at that point. Now, I almost brought this video clip, and I didn't. I sent it to the elders this week because uh, sometimes you just have to have other people share your pain. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't see something and grieve alone over this. And so I wanted to ruin their day. <laughs> and so I sent this clip to them, and I was planning on bringing it and playing it this morning. Honestly, I had it all ready. I just could not bring myself to play this in our service this morning. It is so vile. It is so corrupt. But it was a, like a minute and a half video clip of a church in Washington where a man, the pastor gets up, a man in full drag, and he's preaching a sermon about um, what a wonderful, accepting, inclusive church they are. They welcome everybody. And boy, he preaches fiery sermons when he's in drag. I mean, it makes you want to vomit. But we must, you know, we live in a bubble here in Greenville. You know that, right? Now, one of the reasons I wanted to show it was just to pop that bubble a little bit and go, hey, wake up, this is happening in our country. And the one statement of that man or woman that I agreed with was he said, our church is on the cutting edge of church in America. Sadly, he's right. He's right. More and more churches are lowering their standards of holiness and righteousness and saying, hey, everybody, just do what you want. God loves us all. Wrong. And so this idea of the jealousy of God, people just bristle at this. I'll talk more about that in just um, about two hours. Um, God's people had brought pagan idols into the temple. This is the state that the, the, the nation was in. Just like in our capital a few years ago, that uh, congressman praying to the, the God of whatever it was, and we, you know, the God of all faiths, and we it's like, whoa, this is where we are now? Yeah, that's, that's where we are. They had brought idols into the temple. They were worshiping them there, despite the fact that God had told them very clearly, starting in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, <clears throat> you shall have no other gods before me. And he repeated this for hundreds of years. You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, he went a step further in the next commandment and said, you shall not even make any graven image of anything in heaven, Anything on earth, anything under the sea, no graven image. By the way, our friends in the Catholic Church who I think mean well and are seeking the truth, they're being deceived when they're told to pray to statues. It's idolatry. It's wrong. I could even have a conversation with you about stained glass windows. They're beautiful. I appreciate the art, 
but those that have images of Christ. God says, you shouldn't have that. Don't make any image of me. Don't make any image of anything in heaven. Just don't do that. Worship me alone. Well, that got everybody quiet, didn't it? Hmm. Okay, you're dismissed. Have a good afternoon. Any questions, talk to Rex Jones. (laughs) Well, that's just the beginning of what was going on here in the temple. Pick up now with me in verse 6 of chapter 8. Furthermore, God said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations, and that, that word is not used lightly in Scripture, God has words for sin and wrong and um, uh, iniquity. This is another level. This is, this is doing wrong with malice, with intentional harmful intent. Do you see the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here? To make me go far away from my sanctuary. Oh, boy. Now turn again. You'll see greater abominations So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Verse 8, then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. We're still in the temple. So I went in and saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Verse 11, and there stood before them. Now, who do you think he's going to find in there? Pagan worshipers broken through the back window, and they're worshiping in there. Look at this. Nope. And there stood before them, all these idols, 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in his room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now it's interesting You have to know this was going on. Outside the temple, there were people passing by every day. And I'm sure some of them who were seeking God at this time when the nation has just been torn apart, and they're thinking, you know, wow, I've heard about this God, and, you know, maybe I want to sort of make my way to the outer court of the temple and begin seeking and praying and asking questions. And as they're passing by the temple, some of them surely looked at it and thought, boy, you know, All the religious leaders in there, they're so holy. They're in there doing God's work to try to help spare our nation from further judgment. They didn't realize that inside the temple, behind closed doors, the very people who were supposed to be leading and pointing others to the Lord were actually involved in secret sin. How could these religious leaders ever have strayed so far? How could they ever have reached this point where they've now taken, you know, you go back to Egypt. Remember all the gods they worshiped in Egypt, the the flies and the frogs and all of this. Now they've put these images inside the walls of the temple and they're worshiping them. 
How in the world did they get this far? Well, it told us. Look at the last part of verse 12 again. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. There's two main things they were saying here. One is, our people have been carried away into captivity. Clearly, God's not in charge anymore because he allowed this to happen. And so, what's the point? Just do what we want. And they were saying, God doesn't see us anyway. You know, either he can't see us in here in this inner chamber, I don't know if that's what they meant, or on a broader scale, if they were just saying, eh, God's, he's on vacation, he doesn't care about us. He, he doesn't see what we're doing. Both were very disturbing things to think and to say and to act out. And so there are these elders, these men who were called to represent God to the people, You better believe when they were in front of the people, they put on the show. But behind closed doors, they were living a different life. I mean, we still see this today. It's heartbreaking. How often do we as the church hear stories of some pastor somewhere leading thousands of people being exposed for leading a secret homosexual lifestyle or something? I mean, it's just horrific, the things that go on. And let me tell you something, any person who stands in this pulpit in LifePoint, every one of our leaders, we are all susceptible to having this kind of epitaph written about our life. Every one of us, make no mistake. We're all susceptible. Are we keeping a close watch over our heart? Do we have people in our life who we've gone to and said, I want you to help watch over my life because I can't do this by myself? Hey, Christian, if you think you can live the Christian life by yourself, you are going to be sadly awakened one day to the fact that you can't. Find people in this church or elsewhere who you respect Go to them and say, please, like I'm not asking for hours of your time every week, just please help keep an eye out for me, would you please? If you ever see me do anything, if you ever hear me say anything that raises a red flag for you, I'm begging you to come and tell me. I've done this to men in my life. Please help me with this. What a sad thing this is. Well, God then shows Ezekiel the next thing, verse 13. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, what a statement, to my dismay, this just crushes him, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, time won't permit to, to go into all of the... Um, the mythological history of Tammuz, but Tammuz was a male god, a, a pagan god, um, believed to be associated with the fertility of crops and herds. And the strange story about Tammuz is he supposedly died every year at the end of summer, which then brought on fall and winter and sub subsequently the death of, uh, of the crops. And so the women would go through these ceremonies. It was always the women in this particular case, because women represented fertility and new life. And so the women would gather, and they would, the whole ceremony was weeping. 
They would weep day after day for Tammuz. Um, the, the point of this was, if they mourned enough, then Tammuz would be resurrected from the dead in the spring and thus bring abundance back to the crops and to the herds. Now, there's so much history behind this particular god. It was worshipped in Mesopotamia first uh, and then in multiple cultures. And in one of these cultures, uh, boy, I'd love to go into this, but Tammuz was married to Ishtar in their mythology. Ishtar, we pronounce it wrong, it's pronounced Easter. Easter. (laughs) And... uh, <laughs> yeah. And you study the history of Ishtar of Easter and how her mother was dropped to earth by the moon in an egg. This all ties into what we do, folks. Do you understand? We are buried in paganism. Every year, every year I still struggle with getting up here and saying, Happy Easter. I'm like, I did it again. It's built in deep, man. we got to be careful. But listen, what, what do we do? I had somebody say to me, Oh, you celebrate Christmas. You know Jesus wasn't actually born on the 25th of December. I was like, No way, dude. Like, <laughs> no, I get it. And, and, but I said to her, standing back there in the kitchen years ago, and I said, uh, So where do we start on removing all of uh, the remnants of paganism from our daily lives? I said, because you know, Sunday is named after the sun god. Monday is named after the moon god. On and on. Thursday is named after Thor, the north North god. North. North. Norse. That's the word. Norse god. I knew that didn't sound right. The Norse god. Uh, Hey, Nike shoes. Nike is the name of a pagan god. Ajax cleaner. Ajax is the name of a pagan god. We could go on and on and on. Listen, it just requires some common sense. Read Romans um, 14 if you struggle with this. If you're the kind who goes around bullying other Christians into your position, read Romans 14. God says, if one Christian feels it's okay to celebrate a certain day, let them do it. They're doing it with a clean conscience before God. If you don't want to celebrate it, don't celebrate it. And he wraps the whole thing up by saying, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That's not a bad place to be. Well, uh, now it's a three-hour sermon. So these women are there, God's people again, may I remind you. God's people. They've now brought Tammuz into their worship. One of the verses here says, in one of the other chapters, that they wanted to be like the nations around them. And there's the problem. And so they brought this this false god in. The women were weeping. They're going through the ceremony. Ezekiel sees this, and he's heartbroken. I won't go into it, but the last part of this chapter, God showed Ezekiel men in the temple who, it says, had turned their back to the temple, were facing east, and were worshiping the sun, forbidden multiple times in the scripture. 
worship of astrology. Don't get involved in that stuff, by the way. But keep it between yourself and God, whatever, whatever you choose to do. And so it's interesting, it mentions that little detail. They turned their back to the temple and were worshiping the sun. Did they need to say that? Actually, yeah. Because you never turned your back on the holy place when you were in there. That statement says a lot. They turned their back on God and they were worshiping the sun. Well, you, you, you look at this and you see how far God's people have drifted from him. They had ignored all his calls for 390 years, we saw last week, to come back to him. And now God closes this chapter by saying, they've committed abominations against me. They've filled the land with violence. In one place, he says, they've filled the streets with bodies. And after all that, he says, they've returned to provoke me. In other words, not only have they ignored my warnings for 390 years, my pleas to come back, not only are they continuing in their violence and their idolatry and their sin, but they actually come back to the temple to thumb their nose at me. And so as we step into chapter 9, God's judgment begins to fall. And church, it is terrifying. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then God called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. All this is important to the Jews. doesn't mean much to us today. Um, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. One man among them was clothed in linen, and had a writer's inkhorn or case at his side. It was literally a, a horn that they would hollow out and make a cap for, fill it with ink, and they would carry it with them, and some writing reeds, and that's what he had with him. They went and stood beside the bronze altar. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Now God's presence is beginning to slowly move out of the temple. This is the first step. It's almost like, I don't mean to sound corny when I say this, but as you see the progression in these chapters, it's almost like God says, I have to leave, but he's reluctant to do so. He doesn't just leave. It's this little step first. He just goes to the threshold. And it's almost like, it's almost like he gets there and he's looking back just looking around thinking, oh, wow. Now that's silly. God doesn't, he didn't do that. I'm trying to put it in terms that maybe, you know, my, my simple mind can understand. Um, the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writer's case inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Verse 5, to the others he said in my hearing, oh, and I hate to have to read these verses, but this is God's word, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children, and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. 
and begin at my sanctuary. Whew. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. Boy, oh boy, this is tough stuff. God called for those who, it says, had charge over the city. Um, We don't know exactly what this means. It seems that these were angels. Um, More specifically, destroying angels. I think you'll remember God sent a destroying angel through Egypt to slay the firstborn of all the families that did not have the mark on their doorpost. Um, A destroying angel killed 185,000 men in one night, we saw when we were studying Ezekiel. One came through when David sinned, and so on. Um, So there are destroying angels, and these verses say six men. But throughout the Bible, angels appear as men, and they're referred to as men a number of times. In Genesis 18, it says that three men came to visit Abraham. They had a meal with him, uh, and then it, it later became clear that one of them was the Lord himself, The other two were angels. So these are probably angels. They would have had to have had supernatural power to carry this out uh, in a moment like they did. But along with these six, there's a seventh, a seventh man, different from the rest, specifically says he's clothed in linen and he's carrying a writing instrument to use to, um, in the spiritual realm, put a mark on those who are still faithful. This phrase, clothed in linen, is used in the Bible to refer to Jesus himself, but not exclusively. So I can't say for sure this was Jesus, but as I look through the text and put things together, it seems like it certainly could have been, probably was, for a number of reasons. Number one, he knew who to put the mark on without being told person by person. means he had to know their hearts. Secondly, and we won't have time to get into this, but in chapter 10, um, twice in that chapter, God tells this man to go in among the cherubim around the throne and fill his hands with the coals from the fire around the cherubims and scatter those coals over the city. Uh, I don't know any mortal man who could do that, who could just simply walk up to the throne. So I'll just leave it at that. But, But we see this brutal judgment of God falling now on the wicked. And it's just horrific to read. And I believe maybe the reason, one of the reasons we cringe at this, and maybe even sitting here right now questioning God's right to do this. What kind of sick God? Do you think that a minute ago? Who does God think he is just slaughtering people like this? I think the reason we cringe at this is because we don't understand the enormity of sin's offense in the sight of a holy God. We seem to think that jealousy and grief and anger are somehow not appropriate responses when the one we love leaves us for someone else. Are we serious? These people were God's love. 
He was married to them. He made a covenant of love and faithfulness to them. And they said, we will serve the Lord when they were given the choice. And now for 390 years, they've spat in his face and he's been patient with them. But now the time comes, God says, judgment must fall. Please tell me, if your spouse came home to you today and said, honey, I love you, you know that I love you, but I'm going to be moving out to live with my other lover. We're still going to be married, everything's fine, but I just want to go live with my other lover. As that played out day after day, week after week, after week, tell me that you would not be filled with jealousy and grief and anger. Tell me you wouldn't. Those are right responses to pure, true love. If we don't feel jealousy when our love leaves us for someone else, we don't understand love. God has every right to be jealous over his people. He has every right to be grieving. He has every right to bring judgment. Do, you, do we not discipline our children? Painting God as the bad guy here is just naive and foolish. That's what it is. God's judgment now in this vision begins to fall. He's showing Ezekiel what's about to come to Jerusalem. But what we must not miss here is even when God has to bring judgment, he still shows mercy. Look at verse 8, chapter 9, verse 8. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out. I would have done the same thing and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Ezekiel had such a heart of compassion for these people. Even in their waywardness, he pleads to God on their behalf not to kill everyone. But God had already placed a mark on those who had remained faithful to him. And none of those people were killed in the judgment. Listen, you and I should take great comfort in this. That even in a world filled with evil and corruption, God sees you remaining faithful. No, he doesn't come down and give you a trophy every day. No, he doesn't come down and, and put your name on the front page of the newspaper. That's for later. You're not going to live your best life now. No matter what Osteen says, you're not. This is not your best life now. It's not. But God sees those who remain faithful to him, even when they are surrounded by no one who is. You stay faithful. If no one else does. God knows those who belong to him, and he will deliver them in the day of wrath. God promises this. Listen, yes, God sees you when you're sinning, and that's usually all that most preachers tell their congregation. You, you watch yourself now. God sees you when you're sinning. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But he also sees you when you're in a trial and when you think he doesn't care. He sees you being faithful. He does care. He does see you. And he will never lose sight of you. And he will never let you go. I wonder this morning, are you numbered among 
the true believers who are sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm here to tell you on this lovely Sunday morning, God's judgment is coming. Whether you believe it or not, it's coming. And if you are not marked with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Well, I wind it down quickly uh, with just touching on this last part. Chapter 10, um, most of chapter 10 is Ezekiel seeing the glory of God again, just as he had seen it earlier in chapter 1, and he describes those same things again. But this time, as I said, God's glory, his presence is now leaving the temple. Uh, Let me just tie these two verses together here. Verse 18 of chapter 10. Now, in the previous chapter, God's glory took sort of one step to the threshold of the temple. Uh, Ezekiel 10, 18 says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Now, if you jump over to chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, we see the final step of this. Chapter 11, verse 22. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. There's those wheels again. And the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Um, You know, this really deserves a, a message on its own because this is... This was the worst moment in the history of Israel here. God's presence had been with them the whole way, even through all their rebellion. And now we reach a point where God says, I'm leaving. And God removes his presence because of the wickedness of the people. His glory left the temple, and it will not return to the temple until he comes back to rule in the new temple that Ezekiel has a lot to say about in the later chapters of this book. What a tragic sin this is. And then finally in chapter 11, in the first half of this chapter, God specifically judges those who had been giving out um, wicked counsel to the people. This is referring to the elders again. And so this judgment continues. But even in the judgment here, um, we, we see once again the mercy and the kindness of God. These false counselors in Jerusalem, they use this weird illustration of meat in a pot and so on. I'll let you pursue that on your own. But they were essentially saying, you know, the people who were taken in captivity from our city here, taken away to Babylon, those people, they're the sinners because they got taken away. We're still here in Jerusalem, so we're the righteous ones. God's going to spare us. And God says to them, you've got it completely backwards. You're the ones who are going to die. The captives in Babylon are the ones I'm going to rescue. The Bible says, be careful lest you think you stand. Take heed lest you fall. Be very careful of pointing fingers at other believers and comparing yourselves. Well, I'm more righteous than them because I don't do this and I don't do that. Be real careful. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. We wind it down with this. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet... 
I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Wow. Did God not have the right to say, forget them? This is so beautiful. It's, it's the first amazing promise we see here to these exiles, that his, his presence is still with them even when they're miles away in captivity. Even though they were in the worst time of their lives, God was still with them. The, the word little sanctuary there literally means little holy place. Even though they're away in captivity, I will be with them. I will be their little holy place where they are. I want to tell you, wherever you find yourself in life, God says, I can be your sanctuary. Whatever you're going through, whatever struggles or fears you're facing, God, God says, I can be your little holy place wherever you are. I can be the place where you find peace, where you find rest, where you find joy. You don't have to be extracted from that situation to find his peace, his rest, his joy, his presence. He will be with you there in exile wherever you may be, however bad things may look. But the second beautiful promise is this. Sorry, this is the the last set of verses here. Um, Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Verse 19, then I will give them one heart. Now he's prophesying exactly what we saw in Jeremiah recently. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. There's that beautiful phrase from God again. I want to be with my people. And I'm going to take that heart. You know, what does a stone represent? It's not malleable. You can can press on a stone, and it makes no indent on the stone. God says, I don't want you to have that kind of heart where when you hear from me, it doesn't leave any impression on you. I want you to have a heart of flesh. What happens when you press on flesh? It leaves a little indent there. And God says, I want you to have that kind of heart where when you hear from me, it impacts you. It changes you. It reshapes you. Well, what an extraordinary promise um, this is for us to keep in mind as well. Especially after hearing about such an awful disaster. But again, I close by asking, how did God's people ever get in such a mess? Listen, this is incredibly important. I'm done with this. It happened because they claimed to be God's people. They wore the label. But they had allowed their hearts to drift away from him. They were in the temple. We are in this place this morning. So we must be good, righteous people. Are we? Am I? See, we can wear the badge, we can carry the name, we can speak the lingo, and yet our heart can be miles from God. Be very careful. They had the outward appearance of holiness, but their hearts were not committed to him. See, idol worship was only the symptom. That wasn't the problem. 
Idol worship was only the symptom. Long before they ever turned to idols, they had allowed sin to go unchecked in their hearts. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. No big deal, you know, no big deal. And eventually, those little sins took hold, and they took over, and they did what sin always does. It ruined them. And it will do the same to you and to me. It's easy for us to point out sin on a massive scale in our nation and in our world, and goodness knows I've done it many times from up here, but we're not as eager to recognize the little sins that lurk inside our own heart. These chapters are a stark reminder of how hidden sin can grow and eventually destroy us. I pray that each of us Maybe this morning before we leave, as we sing a couple songs, maybe each of us would be willing to say, God, search my heart and cleanse me of any little sins that I've categorized as no big deal. Help me to see, God, that it provokes jealousy in you. It grieves your heart. Cleanse me, God, from anything that is grieving you today. Would you be willing to do that in these next few moments? Father, we thank you again for the profoundness of your word and how 2,600 years ago um, these events still speak to us. These truths still register with us on such a deep level if we're, if we're open and we're honest um, Father, we, uh, we do not want to live our whole lives and look back and go, boy, I, I had all the bases covered in life. I had insurance on everything, had everything protected, but I never protected my heart. I said I was a Christian. I said I believed, but boy, I let things get in there that just took root and took over, and they destroyed me, and they wasted my life. Father, remind us this morning of the importance of remaining pure and true before you. I pray in these next few moments you would minister to our hearts. I pray that you would point out anything there that is displeasing to you. And God, give us the desire to sweep it all out and to make sure that our allegiance is to you and to you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.